Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Well, I'm very delighted to be here at uh, BIA, uh, the Buddha Dasa Indapanyo Archive, once again. Uh, I think every time I come to Bangkok, uh, I'm invited to speak here, and I'm always uh, a, a glad, happy to uh, to be able to uh, be present and to be able to offer some Dhamma reflections to this community. I feel this is a very wonderful venue and I'm glad to see that it's flourishing as, uh, as time goes by. So the, the theme for this evening is the many faces of insight. And uh, the last time I was here in June, this was a, a topic that was, uh, was suggested uh, insofar as the, uh, the term insight meditation or vipassana is very well known both here in in Asia, in Thailand, and uh, around the world, and in uh, I say particularly in the West, and uh, both in the UK and in the USA, where I was living uh, for many of the um, uh, the Western uh, um, Dhamma practitioners, Western meditators, uh, Buddhism equals vipassana, or vipassana meditation is understood to be the very uh, heart of Buddhist practice, and so it has a a very a prominent position in people's lives, in people's minds, and people have uh, spent many, many years uh, committing themselves to the the practice of vipassana. So uh, we thought it would be uh, good to explore what what is it that this word refers to, uh, uh, what uh, is the way that we understand its meaning, and can we uh, find dimensions of that that are are as a uh, more valuable or more fruitful or bring more uh, say liberating results uh, than others when we we speak of, of vipassana particularly in the west then the uh, the the format for the uh, say the the teaching and practice of, of vipassana meditation uh, the usual instructions that are given are to uh, bring your mind to a level of, of concentration, of steadiness, whereby you can uh, observe the arising and passing away of uh, sensations and thoughts and uh, perceptions. And then uh, when the mind is steady enough to be able to observe that, that flow of experience, then to uh, say not be focusing on a, on any specific object like like the breath or the footsteps or a, a particular mantra uh, to let go of the uh, paying attention to any specific object but to uh, reflect upon the process of experiencing itself the process of of uh, say uh, perceptions and thoughts feelings arising taking shape and dissolving and the principal way that that quality of, of observing or, uh, say, not getting caught into particular sensations or sounds or feelings or thoughts, emotions, is to apply the reflections upon uh, impermanence, anicca, on unsatisfactoriness, dukkha, and on anatta, not self. Uh, 
So uh, I'm presuming that many, many people, if not most people here, have been on uh, Vipassana meditation retreats in the past. So I, uh, I'm guessing that this is familiar territory to most people here. So if this is completely new to you, then I apologize. <laughs> but I, I'm guessing that this is, uh, <clears throat> say, well-known, this kind of format. And so uh, for many people, I lived in the... the uh, the USA for a long time and spent a lot of time around uh, people who had practiced at uh, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, at Spirit Rock uh, Center in California, um, and also many, many uh, students of Goenkaji, uh, and uh, similarly in Britain, the, uh, the, say the common experience of people who've been on uh, Vipassana meditation retreats and uh, similarly the retreats run by members of our own community, Ajahn Sumedho, uh, other uh, teachers of our group, then this uh, tends to be, when, when we use the word vipassana, it tends to be understood to be applying this particular method. You, uh, you sit, uh, you, uh, or you do walking meditation, you concentrate the mind. When the mind is sufficiently stable, uh, then you reflect upon the qualities of anicca, dukkha, anatta, and uh, the... Uh, the practice of vipassana is that uh, application of those particular tools, and then that is what is, the, say, the productive productive of of insight, uh, the the quality of vipassana or clear seeing itself. The the uh, the result of uh, say applying those reflections uh, is what uh, we call vipassana or, or insight. That say a liberating understanding or a changing of perspective upon uh, the, uh, the, the world as we, we know it, the world of our own body, our own mind, what we think of as me and mine, the world of the, the buildings, the people, the, the, the sky and the planet, the, the living world around us. So uh, to, today um, uh, I was reminded as part of that conversation that uh, uh, initiated this, this talk, uh, this uh, particular book called Handbook for Mankind, that was written by Venerable Ajahn Buddhadasa uh, many years ago. And uh, he speaks about uh, uh, insight or vipassana in two different ways in this particular book. So there's one chapter, chapter 7, called Insight by the Nature Method, and then uh, a shorter chapter, uh, chapter 8, Insight by Organized Training. So uh, and this is a very worthy book, uh, available here, <laughs> PIA. Um, the uh, uh, the distinction that uh, Venerable Ajahn Buddhadasa is uh, pointing at is that when we focus upon the methodology, so we think insight is following this particular practice, you have to be on a retreat, you have to be keeping silence, you have to be following a routine, you have to have a, a certain level of concentration, you have to uh, be uh, applying the, the reflections on anicca, dukkha, anatta, uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, in a systematic way. That so, if you think that is vipassana, that's having a, a very limited or, or narrow view of the the, the field. And in his uh, first chapter there, or the earlier chapter there, chapter seven, uh, insight by the the natural method, he uh, uh, is in a sense expanding the view to include more of the perspectives that are offered in the Buddha's teachings. And, and it's kind of interesting when uh, people ask about this sort of method of vipassana meditation, 
uh, when, when, you, when you tell people you can't actually find anywhere in the Pali Canon where the Buddha gives that instruction. Like what I was just dis- describing at the beginning of this talk about focusing the mind to level of concentration and then reflecting on anicca, dukkha, anatta, that doesn't exist in the Pali Canon in those words. Might be surprising, but, uh, and if anyone, and if any of you have ever found it there, please tell me. <laughs> but, uh, to my, to my knowledge, it doesn't exist in that form. It's a sort of a, an amalgam of different aspects of the teaching that have been put together by, um, by masters in, uh, in the, the current age and, and crafted into a particular presentation. But it doesn't, uh, embody what's actually there in the, the Buddha's teaching. So in uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa's presentation, what he outlines uh, is that uh, the the arising of insight, the, the say the awakening of that uh, uh, understanding or that that change of view, that change of perspective that comes with uh, with uh, the uh, awakening of the heart, that this is not something that requires being on a meditation retreat. It doesn't require uh, even a, a, a uh, uh, a gigantic you know, uh, effort, in a way, it doesn't take a, a kind of an enormous level of concentration. And the examples that he gives, he says, if you're given a, a, a mathematics puzzle or you have to solve a mathematical equation, you're doing some some addition, some subtraction. Your mind immediately concentrates on the numbers that you're adding or you're subtracting, you're dividing. That the mind immediately becomes concentrated. He even uses the example of pointing a gun and shooting it. <laughs> So you're paying attention. Your, na- your mind naturally becomes concentrated on that particular activity. And uh, he, he says, really, that's just the amount of concentration that is needed for the arising of insight. That it's not anything particularly special, it's not e- enormous, it doesn't require a whole lot of, of hardware. And the examples that he gives is uh, that uh, even during the Buddha's time, many people became stream enterers, uh, entered the stream, or became... Uh, 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 once-returners or non-returners or even realized arahantship just listening to a Dhamma talk. When someone's sitting listening to a talk like this evening, uh, you're you're not on a retreat. (laughs) uh, You have your eyes open. You're not concentrating on a particular object. Uh, You're you're listening, but uh, over and over and over again we have this a situation described where hearing a Dhamma talk, so, so many people became stream enterers, so many people became uh, once-returners or non-returners uh, or realized arahatship. Like the, the first five companions of the Buddha when he gave the, uh, the teaching on not-self, the Anatalakana Sutta, they, they were listening to a Dhamma talk, they all became arahants, they became fully enlightened, sitting there under the trees in the deer park in Varanasi, uh, hearing their friend, uh, the, the uh, wanderer Gotama, giving this explanation. So the, the point that Ajahn Buddha Dasa is making is not trying to cheapen the quality of vipassana, but saying how it, the vipassana is not just the application of that method. It's not just a matter of having that tool and uh, applying it, but it, it's much, much broader. And uh, the, uh, uh, the main explanation or the description that he gives uh, comes from a a sutta that's called Liberation is a Natural Process. That, uh, that's uh, the title it's usually known by. And uh, it's uh, one of these uh, sequences. The Buddha was very uh, skilled at laying out sequential teachings, or what you can call a, a causal process. 
uh, one thing leading to another, leading to another, leading to another. So many of the Buddha's uh, teachings describe these kind of uh, causal processes, one thing helping to support another. And it starts off with our conduct. It start, starts off with our behavior. And he said, uh, so for one who is, uh, who is living a skillful life and is keeping the moral precepts, there's no need for them to, to think, may my heart be free of remorse. If you're living a virtuous life, you've got nothing to be remorseful about. So therefore, there's no need to be remorseful, no, no need to have regret. Uh, if the heart is free from remorse, then it's natural. Uh, there's no need for the, uh, for the mind to, to think, uh, <clears throat> may I experience uh, uh, contentment, because the heart that is free of remorse is naturally content. If the heart is content, then there's no need to think, may my body uh, and mind be relaxed, because the relaxation of the body, or kaya samati, is natural. One who, whose heart is free of remorse, who is content, then it's natural for them to be physically relaxed. For one who is physically relaxed and who is content, there's no need for them to think, you know, may my heart be fully at ease, may it experience sukha or, or happiness, uh, uh, because if, when the mind and the body are relaxed, it's natural for that quality of, of easefulness, of complete relaxation and contentment to arise. Then he says, for one who is completely content, there's no need for them to think, may the mind be concentrated, because it's natural for the one who is fully at ease, uh, for, their, for their mind to be concentrated. For one whose mind is concentrated, there's, the, there's no need for them to think, uh, may knowledge and vision of the way things are, may insight arise. Because if the mind is concentrated, then it's natural for knowledge and vision, understanding of the way things are to arise. For one in whom knowledge and vision has arisen, there's no need for them to think, may, uh, uh, say, dispassion and, um, uh, and uh, uh, say, disentanglement uh, arise, because one who uh, sees the ways things are, for one in whom knowledge and vision has arisen, then naturally there is a, a disentangling, there's a, a relinquishing, a letting go. Uh, for one who, who lets go, for one who is dispassionate and, dis, uh, and unentangled, there's no need for them to think, may I experience the knowledge and vision of liberation? Because if there is a, a disentangling, a letting go, uh, a, a dispassion towards uh, the field of experience, then liberation is the natural result of that. So one thing leads naturally on to another, to another, to another. And uh, I feel this is, uh, as Ajahn Buddha Dasa explains it, in his uh, handbook for mankind, this is uh, a very key teaching that the uh, the quality of insight is uh, is available to us. Uh, we need to have a basis for that. We need to be living in a, a skillful and wholesome way. We need to uh, say <clears throat> uh, allow those processes to have their effect. But if we do, and uh, uh, if we are say letting that process follow its natural course, then concentration uh, arises, and from that concentration, the mind's reflective ability. If the mind is calm and focused on the present, then the natural intelligence of the mind will recognize the patterns of how things work together, how things relate to each other. There's a, a pattern-recognizing faculty of the heart, and seeing how things work together, then seeing the, the everything is in a state of constant change, that no thing can really be owned, and that no pleasant experience can uh, continue 
continue permanently, it can't continually and perpetually satisfy. So what's there to hold on to and who is there to hold on to it? Ah, and the heart relaxes, it, it lets go. So that uh, in, in this description of, of insight, there it's uh, acknowledging that if, we're, uh, if the mind pays attention to the present, if there is that quality of wise reflection, uh, what we call yoni so manasikara, wise consideration, if we let that uh, natural wisdom function uh, and be brought to, to bear on what we're experiencing, the, uh, the natural, the, the intrinsic result of that is a, uh, a letting go and uh, the freedom that arises from that. Though the, uh, the encouragement of, uh, of Ajahn Buddha Dasa in this, um, uh, as if I can uh, find the page again, the, uh, he, um, he says, Anyone who wishes to get this result must strive to purify themselves and to develop exemplary personal qualities and to be uh, consist uh, to consist in verifying all day and every day the truth of the statement that nothing is worth getting or being. So uh, it's not just remembering those words, obviously. It's not uh, a matter of, of just uh, walking around saying, no getting, no being, no getting, no being. <laughs> Because that's like having a, uh, you know, a, a, a nice fridge magnet that says no getting, no being, and then you turn away from the fridge or you open the fridge door, and there's getting <laughs> from the contents of the fridge. But uh, rather, it's it's cultivating a reflective attitude, bringing that that to mind to say awaken in the heart that wisdom that what can really be got, what can be owned, what can be lost. Who is there to own anything? Who is there to lose anything? Ah, so that the, the heart takes refuge in that awake, aware quality of its own nature and stops seeking for satisfaction in things that can't satisfy. It stops seeking for certainty in things that are uncertain. So that, that uh, the spirit, I feel, of what Ajahn Buddha Dasa is expressing here is uh, gives another flavor to insight, the practice of vipassana. It's not to belittle meditation retreats. I, I spend a lot of time myself on retreats, teaching retreats, and uh, I, they are very, very valuable situations. But I think that the, the point that he is making here is that vipassana, insight, that uh, liberating understanding, is not confined to the retreat center. You don't have to be sitting on a mat or a cushion. You don't have to have a Buddha image or an ajahn in front of you to... Uh, to be, uh, say, uh, initiating, uh, to bringing that process alive. But rather, the key thing is using the faculties that we have, the, the qualities of our own heart, to be uh, paying attention and to reflect. What is this? Uh, this is a feeling of liking. This is a feeling of disliking. This is the gratification of getting what I want. This is the painfulness of not getting what I want. That's what this is. It feels this way. And this is the feeling of me getting. This is the feeling of me losing. It's like this. And when that reflective quality is applied, then that, that is the genuine aspect of, of insight. That is the true vipassana, I would say. Uh, often I, I've uh, pointed this out in slightly different languaging that um, I, I, in my own uh, retreats and teachings, usually if I'm leading a, a retreat for a week or ten days or two weeks, uh, uh, after we start to talk about vipassana insight, 
I will make this clear distinction that there's the vipassana of the method, there's the uh, applying of the reflections, this is impermanent, this is unsatisfactory, uh, is this me, is this mine, who does this moment belong to, who does this mind belong to, is there, a, is there an I, a me, a, a mine that is substantial, is real. Uh, so those application of those methods is one thing, that's the, the method of vipassana, uh, as I like to call it. And then there's the actuality of insight. There is the vipassana as a change of heart. Because really, it's not the method that's the important thing. It's like, it's not, it's not cooking the food that's the important thing. It's the eating the food and the, the nourishment that you get. You know, why do we eat to stay alive? <laughs> that's why we cook. Uh, that's why we like food, so that the body can stay alive. So that the, the purpose of vipassana is that Oh, in that moment when that question is asked, you know, who is it asking this question? Oh, <laughs> yeah. who, uh, who is the owner of this body? Oh, well, who doesn't really apply? It's not really a who, it's just there's a mind which is aware of this body and a feeling of mindness that arises. Oh, that, oh, that's exactly the, the, what I mean by Vipassana as, as an actuality, that change of heart, the change of vision. And it, because in that moment, in that uh, quality of clear seeing, the mind recognizes that <clears throat> this, uh, uh, that which knows the person is not a person. It's, an, it's, an, uh, uh, it's awake, it's aware, but it's not personal. Just like we wouldn't say, this is my gravity. Kauchaimai? Like, I don't own gravity. It's not mine. Does anybody here take the force of gravity personally? Like, this is, this is my gravity. It's ridiculous. But uh, we say my body, my mind, my thoughts, my feelings, my failures, my successes. It's automatic. But uh, the, the quality of awareness, I would say, is just like gravity. We experience the effects of it. It's known here. It's active here but it's not personal. So that in those moments of clear seeing, it's recognized that the, the mind is not a person. That which knows the person isn't a person. That might be a little bit mind-blowing, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a safe environment. We, we've got a bomb-proof room for <laughs> blowing minds. That, uh, that's what monasteries and centers are for. It's a safe environment to let yourself have a radically different perspective on your, your body, your mind, and your life. So this is changing uh, our uh, view of our experience, the field of, of uh, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. It's changing it from a person-centered perspective to a Dhamma-centered perspective, seeing things from the perspective of nature. So I feel that if we... Uh, we, uh, if we are uh, recollecting that, if we remember that vipassana, the the uh, the, the essence of vipassana, the heart, the, the huachai, the real core of it, is not the method, but the result. Then we keep things in perspective. We can be very very uh, committed, and I, I've been a monk for forty years, so. Uh, I, I know about, about sort of sticking with a particular thing. And many of us have been practicing meditation for 20, 30, 40 years, uh, maybe more. Uh, and so we find we can be very committed to the method. 
dedicated to following the method, the technique, following the, the words of the ajahn, or the, the uh, <clears throat> and we have great sincerity about that. We're very determined. We have great resolution. We might experience a lot of difficulty, a lot of disappointment. Things are hard. We keep going. Just stay with it. Don't give up. And I'm not trying to uh, say put that down that we are, are committed to a particular method. But it's important to recognize that it's, uh, if you're cooking the food, you need to eat it as well. <laughs> it's not just a matter of of, uh, of learning how to cook or putting together a good recipe. It's all there in order to bring life. So the purpose of following those methods, being scrupulous, careful in following the Ajahn's instructions, doing what the teacher says moment by moment, being obedient, being a good student, <laughs> that yes, that's, that's worthy of, and noble and beautiful, but the point of the whole thing is the effect of it. So that the, the reason why the method has value is the way that it can change our hearts, and that's the, the real essence of it. So some other aspects of the many faces of insight, um, uh, to, it was the title of this talk, so uh, I thought I would also speak about the, um, some, some of the other qualities, so that when we are um, uh, carrying out the meditation, and uh, we are applying that, uh, uh, say, these kind of practices, concentrating the mind and developing this uh, capacity to, to reflect. One of the things that is uh, most tricky or difficult or, or, or easy to miss, uh, even if the mind isn't spelling it out like, I am the meditator, you know, this is my mind, my body, even if the mind isn't kind of making that very, very clear, that can easily be the attitude in the background. This is my practice. I'm meditating. This is my mind. And so even as we're practicing vipassana and developing the insight into not-self, there can be this silent uh, attitude that it's, it's me developing the insight into not-self. It's me seeing that the body is not-self. It's, it's me that's, uh, that's doing this practice. I'm the doer. I'm the owner. I'm the experiencer. And so... An, uh, of anicca and dukkha and anatta, you know, the anatta is the, the trickiest one <laughs> because those feelings of I and me and mine can be extremely subtle. So the, the Buddha outlined uh, two different uh, levels or two different qualities of identification. And I speak about this quite often because I feel it's particularly important in terms of developing vipassana meditation to its full uh, capacity to its full potential. So the first level of identification is called Sakaya Ditti. Uh, in English that's translated as self-view. The, the way you break the Pali word down is Sa, meaning true or real, Kaya, the, the body, Ditti, view. So literally it means the view of the real body or the view of the real person. So you can summarize that uh, attachment or that that um, attitude as I am the body, I am the personality. I am Ajahn Amaro, uh, I am 63 years old, uh, I am uh, in Thailand, I am at BIA, you know, all those I ams. The, uh, this is my body, this is who I am. I'm, I'm a male human being uh, born in England, that's who I am. So Sakaya Ditti is believing all of that to be absolutely true. 
So the first level of realization of enlightenment, stream entry, uh, the first aspect of stream entry is seeing through Sakaya Ditti, letting go of Sakaya Ditti, of self-view. It's the, the, the understanding or the realization that uh, saying, I am a man, or I am a woman, or I am British, you know, I am 63, those can only be uh, samuti sacha, they're, they're conventional truths, they're, they're just ways of speaking, they're not absolutely true or real. Uh, they, uh, they are uh, what we call human agreements, or I like the phrase, a convenient fiction. I'm not sure what that would be in Thai, <laughs> but it's a, a convenient fiction, like a, a useful story. That's all. So that 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 is the first level of um, say attachment or identification, so identification with the body or the personality. Then the second level is is not uh, let go of until uh, arahantship. So I'm not pretending to be an arahant, but I can explain the subject, even though I uh, I do not embody the territory. <laughs> I can explain the ter- describe the territory, even though. Uh, I, uh, the, that has not been realized yet, so I just want to make want to make that clear, <laughs> especially as this is being live streamed. <laughs> so, uh, worldwide declaration of uh, I'm not claiming arahantship, but I do feel it's important to understand that there is this other subtle level. So, if vipassana meditation and the the years and decades and the hours and hours, thousands of hours you spend on the cushion or on the walking path and you have diligently uh, seen through the delusion of I am the body, I am the personality, there's a whole other level that is maybe not realized, that is very useful to realize and to be aware of. So this other level of identification is called Asmi Mana. Mana means conceit, Asmi means I am. So it's the conceit of I I am, the conceit of identity. So the the most uh, helpful uh, sutta to speak about this, I find, is uh, called the Kemaka Sutta. And in this this, uh, this passage from the 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 Pali uh, Pali scriptures, it describes this this very old monk called Kemaka, Venerable Kemaka, and he was quite sick, quite aged, and uh, was uh, in his little hut, his kuti, uh, on his deathbed, close to the end of his life. And uh, and sometimes when uh, somebody was dying, then their friends in the monastic life, the other brother monks or nuns, would come to them and say, yeah, Venerable friend, yeah, have you completed your practice? Have you realized arahantship? Have you, have you come to the end of the path? And so even though he's lying on his deathbed and his friends come to see him, he sa- and they ask him this question, he said, uh, no, I have not. Uh, so then, uh, the people who are visiting him, then they, they go back and they uh, they tell their other friends, other monks in the monastery. Oh, Kemaka says he hasn't realized arahantship yet. And then the other friends across the monastery say, Well, in what way has he not realized arahantship yet? What work has he still got left to do? And there's this back and forth, um, and he keeps sending a message to his friends. And they keep sending more questions, and eventually Kemaka gets fed up. Says, okay, I've had enough of this. Gets up off his bed and goes to see these other other friends. This is a, a, um, a kind of a rough version of the story. So he goes across to, to see his other friends, uh, having got a bit tired of the, <laughs> the back and forth. And he says, it's like this. So uh, 
I've developed the level of insight where there's no attachment to the five khandhas, to the body, to feelings, to perceptions, to thoughts and emotions, memories, ideas, to imagination, to intention, even to consciousness itself, to, to the discriminative consciousness. All of this I see that this is, this is not me, this is not, not mine, this is not who I am. But, even though there's no attachment to the five khandhas, as far as it's possible to tell, still this feeling of I is, is around. This keeps persisting. So it's like with a flower, when you can smell the fragrance of a flower, you can't tell it. You can smell it, it's fragrant, but is the fragrance coming from the pollen? Is it coming from the petals? Is it coming from the nectar? Is it coming, where's it coming from? It's there, but you can't see what it's attached to. So in exactly the same way, even though there's a clear knowing, that the, the five khandhas are not self, not me and not mine, still this I feeling is hovering around. So Venerable Kemaka is notable insofar as, as he was giving that description to his friends, he realized arahatship. So not only do you, can you realize arahatship when you're listening to a talk, you can realize arahatship while you're giving a talk as well. You can follow your own advice to, to reach arahatship. And also, some of his friends also realized full enlightenment as they heard uh, this explanation. So, that quality of asmi mana is, is very, very subtle. And so that when we are, we're, uh, say, aiming to develop the, the insight uh, that is liberating, and we, uh, are, whether it's informally during the, the course of a day, cultivating wise reflection as you go about your work or interact with your family or deal with the Bangkok traffic or whatever it might be, or whether you're in a, a Dhamma center like this or you're on a meditation retreat, you're doing you know, a, a 10 days or a month or, or three months of intense uh, vipassana meditation, then this is a, a crucial factor uh, to to be noticing uh, the that subtle quality of I and me and mine that is there in the background, as the Venerable Kemaka described. Uh, in another sutta called the, the Panchataya Sutta, in the Majjhima Nikaya, the sutta number uh, 103, I think. Anyway, the, it's called the Five and the Three. It's uh, 105, I think. Uh, the Buddha describes uh, the situation. He says there might be someone who's meditating, and uh, <clears throat> they are they are at peace. Their mind is bright and clear, and then the thought arises in their mind: "I am at peace. I am without clinging. I have realized nibbana." And in uh, in the Wisdom Publications edition of the Majima, then helpfully Bhikkhu Bodhi did the translation, he puts the I in italics and underlines it. <laughs> I am at peace, I am without clinging, I have realized Nibbana. Then the Buddha says, the very way that the mind phrases uh, that experience indicates the clinging that is still there. So uh, in this respect, uh, he said that the, when that is recognized, when that, that clinging is seen, then what, uh, what remains is that quality um, uh, of awareness, the arising and passing away of experience, and the uh, there is the, uh, the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching that flow of of perception, and uh, <clears throat> there is the, the the quality of 
non-entanglement, non-attachment, non-identification with, with any of that. There is a, a um, uh, say, a recognition of uh, a genuine insight into not-self. How could there be an I that is separate, uh, that is the, the owner or the knower or the possessor, the, uh, uh, the individual that is experiencing it? That feeling of I-ness is also a mental impression. A feeling of meanness and minus is a mental impression. So in the meditation, we can uh, ac actively explore that. So that uh, when the mind is very calm and those other uh, levels of insight have been established, then that quality of wise reflection can be strengthened, deliberately, uh, say, uh, clarified by using uh, the reflective questions or statements Say just by using the uh, a, a way of declaring what's what's being experienced. Like this is the feeling of me meditating. This is my mind, and oh, this this moment is being experienced by me. And when that is say clarified or stated uh, in the 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 spaciousness and. Uh, the uh, so the the brightness, the clarity, the uncluttered mind. Then, just using the word of me, the the wisdom of the heart recognizes me. What is that? <laughs> Mine? What's that? How can anything be owned? How can anything really s sustain itself over time? Oh, and so this is a way of illuminating, clarifying even those very, very subtle attitudes of I and me and mine. You can also use questions like, who is it ask, asking this question? <laughs> uh, who, who is the experiencer of this insight? And again, when that kind of question is brought into the clear, awake, uncluttered field of experience, then even the word who sounds wrong. It's like, well, it's not a who, it's more of a what. <laughs> It's not. It's not an I. It's. It's this. It's this awake, aware quality, and that letting go of individuality, letting go of personhood, uh, letting go of of those subtle qualities of identity. That is really what brings the uh, potential for insight to its uh, fulfillment. So uh, again, uh, this is describing a kind of method. So we can sit there saying. Oh, okay, Ajahn Amaro described this really good method. So, like, who is this meditating? Who owns this moment? Yeah, who am I? And we can be locked onto the method, repeating the method. But even a method that is designed to to so deal with these most profound and subtle levels of attachment is still just a method. <laughs> the point is the oh, <laughs> when that absurdity of the word who is recognized, when it's like oh. Uh, it's not a who. It might have been cry. It doesn't really apply. It doesn't have a meaning. Oh, so to keep recollecting, it's that that uh, spaciousness of the heart, the awake quality of the heart, that is the uh, the point of that this whole area, this whole domain, uh, this uh, uh, area of dhamma practice. Or when they use. Uh, Phrases like that which knows the person is not a person, or, or the, the mind is uh, 
the mind is not a person, the mind is Dhamma, then these, these phrases are uh, designed to be, uh, say, liberating, but they can also be a bit shocking or confusing. Well, what does he mean I'm not a person? Or if that which knows the person isn't a person, what is it? Oh. And then the mind gets caught into conceptual proliferation. But with these kind of uh, phrases or, or questions, we're not trying to look for a, a conceptual answer or an idea to hang on to, but rather the purpose of that saying, the mind is not a person, the mind is Dhamma. It's not so that we'll then grab that and go, oh, I'm, I'm the Dhamma, that's what I am. That's, 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 that's the real me. I'm, I'm the ultimate reality. I'm Dhamma, that's what I am. That's just the, the thinking mind and self-view grabbing hold of an, uh, an attractive spiritual idea, <laughs> carrying that around. The point is that that wakeful aware quality, what is called vidya in Pali, that awake, aware, knowing quality, that to be clarified and freed of all of the limitations of, of self-view, the boundaries created by avijja, by ignorance. Maybe the last thing to, to share on this uh, this theme then is uh, when the Buddha was sitting meditating by himself in the forest, uh, a, uh, a Brahmin called Dona was walking uh, along the road and he, he noticed these footprints in the dust of the, of the road and thought, who made these footprints, these, these feet? They've left the, the marks from the, the lines on the bottom of the, the feet in the dust. Said, Whoever this person was, they got amazing uh, patterns on their feet, these kind of wheel marks, the kind of perfectly round wheel marks with the spokes and these other uh, patterns from the from the footprints. And so Dona thinks, well, who made these footprints? This must be some kind of extraordinary being. So he, he follows the footprints uh, off the, the road and into the, the edge of the forest, and he sees the Buddha sitting under a tree. And so he'd been intrigued by the marks in the dust, and then he saw this uh, uh, the figure of the Buddha sitting under under a tree meditating and this quality of peacefulness serenity and a powerful strength wow who is this this is amazing this radiant peaceful extraordinary being this uh, uh, powerful and impressive presence so he went up and, and knelt in front of the buddha and said yeah, excuse me yeah, uh, are you a deva and the, the buddha replied i'm not a deva are you a, are you a Brahma god? No, I'm not a Brahma god. Um, are, are you a, a, a yaka, a kind of a, 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 a kind of spiritual demon? No, I'm not a yaka. <laughs> well, are, are you a human being? And then the Buddha says significantly, "No, I'm not." So, well, if you're in the, then donor is a bit confused. Well, if you're not a deva, you're not a Brahma, you're not a, a yaka or a human. You know, please, may I ask, what are you? And then the Buddha replies, Buddhosmi, which means, which is Buddho Asmi, it's a regular part, which means, uh, you can, uh, which means I am awake. Buddho means awake. So the word we use for the Buddha is very much informed by that very, uh, exchange. He said, uh, know me as one who is awake, Buddhosmi, I am awake. So when the Buddha, the Buddha cannot lie, he's incapable of lying. When he's asked the question, are you a human being? The, the voice is speaking from the place of Dhamma itself, from the place of, of ultimate reality. So when he says, are you a human being? So, well, 
I'm awake. <laughs> I'm not a human being. So he's speaking from that place of radical non-attachment, non-entanglement, non-identification. It's the, it's the pure heart speaking its own, uh, its own nature, uh, embodying its own nature. So uh, this, I feel, is a, a very beautiful and clear way of demonstrating what vipassana is about. It's helping us to recognize that, that even though we, we look like people, we're kind of disguised as humans. But that's this is the sort of the like the banana skin, you know. There's a has a skin on the outside, but there's something else on the inside. So that I would say that yeah, we we carry the bodies of humans, but our hearts, our minds, are something much bigger, much more uh, uh, infinite, universal, timeless. And that the work of vipassana, the work of vipassana meditation, uh, is the 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 work that is needed to uncover what what is inside these things what's in the packet <laughs> if you take the if you peel the skin off you know, what what do you find inside you know, if you undo the package what what what's inside the package that that's what the method is for and then when the package is opened when the 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 say what is the nature of this the, this this heart this life this this mind is is revealed then that is the the quality of of insight the uh, the quality of of uh, liberation that arises from that just as when you open a package you go oh <laughs> that uh, when you open the package of your own life your own heart your own mind th- what we describe is uh, what we uh, what we find is uh, is that great uh, uh, presence of the the dhamma itself we we discover that's the nature of the heart. This is what we have always been all along. But most of us don't bother to open up the package, or we, we praise the package and put it in a high place and bow to it. Never open it. <laughs> or we, uh, we carry our package around very carefully, and uh, we, we do our practice very carefully and very sincerely, but the point is to open it up. And uh, to, uh, So with these words this evening, I hope to encourage you to open up the package of your life to see what really lies uh, at the very heart and to see that that uh, that um, is a potential that we all have and that uh, when that is realized then we we find the true value the true the true meaning the true worth of this uh, human uh, existence that we have we're able to awaken to the fact that uh, what we are what is real is is beyond the bounds of time and individuality, beyond the bounds of, of location, but is the, really the Dhamma itself. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. We have a microphone, some yeah. microphones Question? to wander. Put so please feel free to ask any questions that are bubbling up. We have about half an hour. Don't be shy. No questions? All doubts have ended? (laughs) This one. A doubt has arisen. Uh, Hello, thank you very much for your talk. Um, And I'm just thinking about that last sort of point that you made about there being a package to open um, your life is a package to open and explore and if you make the 
realization of, of non-self, so to speak, um, I'm kind of wondering, well, what, what exactly then is the, uh, what is there left for you to, to open, if you like? What is, what is it that you can possibly, um, what, what is your life actually if you are no self? <laughs> Well, the, uh, the, the uh, simplest way of, of talking about it is you know, to start with uh, every aspect of our body and mind is part of nature. There isn't a single uh, atom or particle of our physical body that is not part of the natural order. Even the plastics we've ingested or the the mercury fillings in our teeth, you know, these are all part of nature. Uh, every aspect of the mind is also part of nature. Your very personal ideas or memories are also part of the natural order. You didn't invent memory. You know, so the fact of the mind being able to remember, the fact of the mind uh, working in the ways that it does, these are all part of a natural order. So that we... Uh, in a sense, if, uh, if we change the view from a person-centered view to a, a nature-centered view, we're recognizing that, that uh, we are an aspect of the natural world. In the Thai language, the word for nature is tamachat, which comes from the Pali dhammajati, born of the Dhamma. So that you're, uh, if you see that the, every aspect of the body and the mind is part of the natural order, is part of nature, then it's in a way recognizing that everything that you are is Dhamma. But as I was saying, if you take that as an idea, I'm the Dhamma, that's what I am, <laughs> then it can be the ego grabbing the idea. But if the mind awakens to that, that realization moment by moment, then you having been born, having the karma of that particular um, body, a particular personality, a particular life story and qualifications and, and relationships and so on, that doesn't just disappear in a puff uh, and uh, uh, it carries on. That those, uh, say, the, the wheels that have been set in motion with our birth, being born to particular parents, being born in a particular country, having a particular personality, education, language and so on, those things have a momentum but the mind is able to uh, recognize those in a um, uh, in a, a, a responsive way. It can, uh, relates to liking and disliking, comfort and, and discomfort, abilities and disabilities. It relates to them in a responsive way rather than a reactive way. Uh, there was actually a, a passage in here. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to find it, but um, the uh, a um, the Ajahn Buddha Dasa talks about um, the uh, people, my misunderstanding. So a skeptic might, might ask, if nothing at all is worth getting or being, does it follow that nobody ought to do any work or build up wealth, position and property? Anyone who comprehends this subject can see that a person equipped with right knowledge and understanding is actually in a far better position to carry out any task than one who is subject to strong desires. Foolish and lacking in understanding. Very briefly, 
In becoming involved in things, we must do so mindfully. Our actions must not be motivated by craving, and the result will follow accordingly. So, um, if if uh, the nature of mind is dhamma, uh, uh, then it doesn't mean to say that we don't do anything, or that there isn't something effective to do in the world, but far more, the mind is more attuned to the needs of the people around us, it's attuned to the capacities that we have, uh, also the limitations that we have, and is more able to work within that, so that the, there's a natural responsivity to do what you can do, to help where you can, and where you can't help, and can't do anything, then to leave it alone. And so, as Ajahn Buddhadasa points out, the, the more the mind is free of those kind of attachments and entanglements, then the more you'll be able to use your full capacity. You can function more freely. And uh, uh, again, as he, as he points out, that the, you know, the Buddha and the Arahants were very, very active in the world. That um, the, uh, uh, Let's see if I can find it. The Buddha and all the other Arahants were completely free of desire yet succeeded in doing many things far more useful than what any of us are capable of. Uh, so that oftentimes, and this is a theme I frequently bring up, is people tend to misread non-attachment as passivity. So it's like, let go, don't attach, uh, don't grasp, don't cling. And they assume, okay, you just sort of yeah, nullify your life and to just stop being but that's a, a, a misunderstanding i would say and the, and the, the easiest example to use is the buddha himself as uh, again as ajahn buddhadasa points out in that same passage he says the buddha slept 4 hours a, a day the other 20 hours he was working <laughs> you know he spent the 45 years of his teaching career traveling uh, on foot you know, all over northern india uh, ceaselessly teaching, he established the Sangha, the monks' order, the nuns' order, the, the uh, lay community, established many, many monasteries. He was a, a guide for many, many of the monarchs and you know, rulers of the northern India. And so he was extraordinarily creative and active in the things that he did, but he was completely unattached and free of craving during the, the time he was doing all of that. So non attachment. Uh, non-entanglement, non-grasping, doesn't mean passivity. It means letting yourself work more freely, letting a, the natural connection that we have with the living world, with the people around us, with the planet that we're on, the air that we breathe, the water that we, that we drink. It's a, a, a natural appreciation and responsivity to that. So rather than trying to create some sort of dissociated, numb spot, but sort of the I'm, I'm practicing non-attachment. I don't feel anything. You know, you just, and I'm, I'm kind of playing that up, but it's also often how people interpret non-attachment. Or like, I, I'm, uh, I shouldn't, like in meditation, I, I shouldn't move. I'm practicing non-attachment to, to, uh, to the body. And so, yeah, that can, you can develop a certain amount of resolution and determination. You can also wreck your knees and your back. And that uh, a little adjustment of the po yeah, posture, when the body, in its own, uh, with its, in its own nature, saying, you know, that that right leg needs to move because serious, you know, actual damage is being done here. <laughs> that that pain is not just dissociated from the, the the actuality of the physical body. The pain is Mother Nature's indicator that something is being stretched. 
So like our, our teacher, Ajahn Chah, would uh, say, whenever you feel physical pain in meditation, it's, uh, it's good to just stay with that feeling for a period of time, for a few minutes, to fully investigate that. But uh, when, you, uh, when you're aware that uh, the body really needs to change its posture, then change the posture mindfully. And so I, I live, I've lived in monasteries, as I said, for 40 years. So a lot of my brothers and sisters <laughs> got, got pretty bad knees and, and backs on account of, you know, pushing through. And I've done a lot of that myself, you know, that, uh, just pushing through. And I'm not saying that you can't develop a lot of spiritual skill just by being with pain, but pain is there for a purpose. It, it's Mother Nature's way of helping the body to protect itself. So, in, in response to your, your question then, that um, being Dhamma or, or, or embodying Dhamma doesn't mean sort of floating around on a purple cloud and expecting people to come and put food in your mouth, but it's rather being able to live more completely and to, to you find yourself more able to do what you can do, but it, uh, almost more significantly, especially to compulsive doers that we have in, in the world, <laughs> Many of us are, are like a lot of activity and can't stop doing. When there's the recognition there's nothing to be done here, you're far more at ease leaving it alone. Just okay, that's out of my out of my hands. I can't do anything. Ploy one, let go. Just just leave it be. And um, for, for particularly for Westerners, I, I I don't want to typecast Asian and Western people, but particularly for Westerners. Uh, and being one myself, you know, that you have a strong condition of like, do something, don't just sit there, do something. You know, something's got to be done, and, and we feel very unsettled if we can't do something. But uh, it's often the case that the best thing to do, your most helpful contribution to a situation is don't touch, leave it alone. And But not switching off, you're aware of what's going on, but you, you recognize there's nothing to, to be done, Relax, just be still, say nothing. And then when the moment changes and it's time to do something or say something, then you speak or you act. So that the, the, uh, the motivation, the choices that you make in your life are guided by mindfulness and wisdom rather than me trying to do something or me trying to get this or get away from that. So, another question. There was a second hand that went up somewhere. Yes. Uh, gentleman at the back of the glasses. Yeah, I've studied mostly in the Zen tradition, and the way that we express it is there's no permanent self, there's no abiding self. And I can understand that much more easily. The Joe that's standing here now you know, lived in New York, but I, now I live in Bangkok. I grew up studying the Jewish religion. Now I study Buddhism. So I can understand that. And, you know, in another 50 years, I'll be gone. But it sounds like you're taking it to another level that is hard for me to grasp that. You know, it'd be like saying, well, there's no Joe. There's really no Joe. <laughs> and, and I can understand that on a metaphysical level, but still, you know, at the end of this lecture, you know, I'm 
take the I'm going to take the sky train back to Tapra and I'm going to and when I get home my wife is going to say Joe welcome home and so on and so that's it's like how do I understand that level of there's no there's really no Joe <laughs> I would uh, more Joe is a convenient fiction. Seriously, so because uh, it's also uh, one of the things that I, I found uh, that Ajahn Sumedho explained very, very clearly and very helpfully over and over is that the teachings about anicca, dukkha, anatta that they're not uh, articles of faith. They're not things that you're supposed to believe in. Like I believe everything is not self, but they're more tools to use to investigate our experience so that we're able to sort of look at those feelings of permanence or it's, it's always been this way or it's always going to be this way is that so is that a sure thing uh, or that but i i am joe I, you know, i'm not susan i'm not i'm not steve i'm, I'm joe that's what that's who i am so then it's a, a way of exploring that but i am this I, you know i am amaro but then it's a way of the, uh, of challenging that or, or, or opening it up and say, well, when I say I am Joe, what's, what's that word I referring to? Well, what's, what's the referent? What is that? Does it have a shape? Does it, where, where is it? Uh, so it's, uh, uh, you're not trying to believe, uh, you know, that, uh, there is no Joe. <laughs> uh, it, it, so it's not a belief system, but rather it's like a set of tools to, to unpick all of the assumptions that the mind tends to make. And this, um, uh, uh, this uh, understanding of, of using them as tools is, uh, I feel, far more helpful and practical. So you're not trying to make yourself believe everything's impermanent or everything's unsatisfactory. But you're saying, well, uh, uh, is there a way that this could be permanently pleasing? Or when I say, I am Joe or I am Amaro, then what, what, what does that really mean when, we, uh, when we, we use that word I? What's, what's, what's that referring to? And again, in, med in the meditation, just one of the most revealing and helpful practices is just to think the word I. Just let the mind be as quiet as possible and just, just, just think the word I. I. And did it, if any, uh, just as I was saying that, did anyone notice there's a slightly weird feeling? They go, oh. Ah, me. This is me. Me. I don't know about you, relatively speaking, <laughs> but when uh, in the quietness of the mind, even in the flow of a, of a talk like this, just to say, we're putting everything else aside, like, I... Something in the heart knows, that's kind of weird. What, what the heck is that? Right? There's a, there's a kind of, oh. Because it's almost like, it's like a conjuring trick. It works when you don't quite see what the conjurer is doing with their hands. If you, if you slow the whole thing down and see how the conjurer does the trick, then it's not a trick anymore. So, well, it doesn't, the trick doesn't work. So we use the words, you know, I am Joe, in a very ordinary, everyday conversation. If you're sitting with your eyes closed, there's the usual signals of personhood are not around. The mind is quiet, awake, and you just think the word, Joe. 
Joe. And I often teach this as a, as a meditation method on retreats, just about, around about the fourth or fifth day of a ten day retreat. I say, just think of your own name. Just let the mind be as quiet as possible, so familiar to you, been using it your whole life, and then just let the mind be as quiet as possible and just bring that which is so familiar to mind. Joe, or Noi, Song, Nit, <laughs> whatever your names uh, might be. And then there's that kind of slightly, almost like a vertigo, like, oh, there's something that, well, what is that? Because we use our name in a conversation, in, in the flow of activity, like a conjuring trick, or like a movie with all the different frames, it seems to be a consistent whole. When we stop it and freeze it and, and look closely, it's like, oh, what the heck is that? What, what is an Amaro? <laughs> yeah. So that, uh, the reflections on Anatta are the, the, those kind of tools to explore the assumptions that are made. And that, and if the result that arises, well, I'm Joe, that's who I am, duh, you know, and it seems absolutely solid, then you can take a step back and say, well, this is the feeling of that being absolutely solid. That's what this is. Is it really solid? It's, yeah, there's a feeling that it's solid. Is that so? So that you're using that, that, the reflections on anicca, on certainty, and, uh, and anatta, uh, uh, not just as a, to create a different idea or a sort of philosophical position, but to open up those habits of attachment and identification. So we're not trying to go around saying, you know, I don't exist, I don't exist, I'm not real, I'm not really here. <laughs> but uh, but as, a, as an idea or as a belief, but in a sense revealing, revealing the, the, the reality of what's at the heart of things. So even the 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 Western philosopher David Hume back in the the eighteenth century, uh, who was not a Buddhist meditator, <laughs> in in uh, his uh, reflections on human nature, uh, I couldn't tell you which chapter, but it's it's in there. He uh, he he describes how you know, whenever I look at my my mind or my feelings or my thoughts and. Uh, and I, I hear, I smell, I taste, I, I, I taste a flavor, I smell an odor, I hear a sound, and, and yet when I look for that which is the, what is doing the hearing, what is doing the thinking, what is, is feeling that sensation, yeah, I can't find anything there. I can't find that I that is the experiencer. And so, uh, even in the in, in the field of Western philosophy, I would say that's a genuine insight into not self. He didn't have that language, but uh, of Buddhist teachings. But uh, just as uh, as Ajahn Buddhadasa was describing, if we stop and look at our life, look at the mind, and and use that reflective wisdom, David Hume is doing exactly that. Just uh, oh, oh look, you know, we we talk about I think, I feel, I taste, I smell, I touch, I touch, but when we look for what that, that self is, you can't find anything. Oh. So that uh, I would suggest what's valuable is to carry out those kind of reflections, develop those reflections, and see what the result is. 
If it's liberating, great. If it's not liberating, it just creates more doubt and confusion, well, do something else. <laughs> yes, a gentleman with a... If you can use the microphone, so... Well, people otherwise will not be able to okay, hear you. thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for this beautiful talk. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm a beginner. I'm about your age, but I just started now. My trail, I'm meditating, I'm trying to become awake. What I would like to ask you, you have been studying and teaching for over four decades. Um, what is the biggest mistake that uh, prevent people like me, beginner? I own businesses, I'm a businessman in New York City. Um, becoming detached is not exactly the easiest thing for me. Um, so what is uh, the suggestion that you can give? One, maybe one suggestion to try to um, transcend our, uh, to become awake and uh, um, help us in, in this trail. The, the biggest mistake we, we make, the most common, and what you suggest us when we don't have much time, like in my case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, good question. Um, well, everybody is different. So personalities vary. So the different things are encountered uh, by different people. And uh, actually, uh, I was in, in Bodh Gaya, um, for the last few days. I just arrived in Thailand yesterday from Bodhgaya and somebody asked exactly this question under the Bodhi tree two days ago. <laughs> uh, virtually identical question. So, so firstly, people vary. So there are different obstacles, that, like specific obstacles that different people meet, whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, where, where you live, where your work is, your personality, your education, your language. There's a huge a variety that uh, people meet. But there's uh, one particular piece of advice that the Buddha gave and also is emphasized by Ajahn Buddhadasa in, in, uh, in both in this, this teaching and other places um, where one particular instruction where the Buddha said, if you've heard this, you've heard everything. If you've understood this, you've understood everything. If you've practiced this, you've practiced everything. And if you fully realized the results of this, you fully realized everything. And the, um, uh, the, the thing to learn is only four words. In the Pali is sabhe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya. And the English of that is nothing whatsoever should be clung to. Don't grasp at anything. Don't cling to anything. And uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, would, I was at Suanmok in 1988. Uh, I was fortunate to be there for a couple of weeks. And this was a, a regular theme in Ajahn Buddhadasa's teachings at that time. He said, you can summarize the whole Buddha Dhamma in four words. You know, <laughs> those four words, don't cling to anything. And so um, in your work, uh, in uh, the workplace, you, you said you're in New York City. And... Uh, uh, here you are in Bangkok as well, and whether you're practicing meditation, whether you're in the, um, a meeting in the workplace, or whether you're uh, on the road, or wherever you might be, this principle 
is applicable in every situation because the habit of grasping, of clinging, is uh, extremely strong. Whether we're grasping at an opinion, grasping at a sense pleasure, uh, grasping at a custom or a tradition, yeah, grasping at the feeling of I, me and my, I and me and mine. That don't you know who I am or what about me? <laughs> so that habit of grasping it happens in 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 a count, countless number of domains. So. Uh, as a beginner or even as an experienced uh, practitioner to get to know the feeling of grasping grasping at pleasure, grasping at pain, grasping at success or failure, grasping at opinions uh, grasping the feeling of I and mine to get to know what that grasping is like and then the other part is to, to, uh, <clears throat> to acknowledge okay this thought is being grasped up, this feeling, this opinion, this plan is being grasped at. Okay? Let go. So, <clears throat> that letting go doesn't mean throwing away, it means relaxing the grip. So if I, if I take hold of this book and I grasp it, you know, I'm clutching it tightly, so my arm is shaking. I've given this demonstration here, I think a few times as well. So your arm is shaking, it's tense, just through the sheer pressure of holding. So to let go doesn't mean I have to throw it away, it just means relaxing the grip. And then when it's time to put it down, you can put it down. You need to pick it up again, you pick it up again. So, the, uh, the, it's really a, a two-part process. To notice when the mind is grasping, uh, to acknowledge that, to feel the stressing, the tension in the heart because of that, and then to train the heart to respond by that relaxation, letting go. And if, if you can do that, if you, if you can really get familiar with that and train the heart to respond to grasping by letting go, then that's applicable in your family life, in your, your health, your well-being, your work life, the meditation life, everywhere. It, it's applicable in all situations. So it's, not, it's a simple principle, but very hard to, to learn. And it's the things that we don't realize that we're grasping, they're the real tricky ones. <laughs> but that's also where, uh, in terms of advice, a whole other part of it is good friendship. We can't do this on our own. Maybe one in a hundred million, I reckon, can really do this on their own. The rest of us need friends. <laughs> so, uh, again, uh, the uh, I would say as a support for that training of non-grasping, notice who you spend your time with. Who do you choose to be with? How do you spend your time? And the more that we can spend time with wholesome and helpful friends uh, who have skillful attitudes, then the more that uh, enables us to fulfill the potential that we have. If we hang out with people who are destructive or foolish or have uh, say behaviors that, that are confusing or agitating, then that has a, a, an unhelpful effect. So uh, I would say those those are two principles to to uh, to use, and I would say is pretty much uh, guaranteed to be a benefit if you apply them in a consistent way. So I see that the uh, time has come around to. 7.25, do we 
have one more question or time for one more question? We had three, oh no, you already had one, so you've had, had three guys already. Um, there's, a, there's one at the back there. The women have no doubts. <laughs> Only the men have got doubts. So congratulations, well done. Well done. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Please. Uh, hello, everyone. So, um, can I sit down? <laughs> okay. Um, Past month, I got so many responsibilities coming from all sides, study, work, and all the duties that I have committed. And I felt so much burdened. And that's uh, when I started to come back to the text of Buddhism that I've been studying my whole life as a Thai. It's been put in our curriculum, national curriculum and really try to understand it and understand the life, the tukha, and the relaxation of mind with only studying, studying, studying every day, every day when I feel stressed, the causation and the reproduction of the mind, I, I could feel that I relax a lot when I realized that actually it is not the self, it is not my name, which is Pawin Pon, that have been experiencing everything. It's just a new mind, every single moment. And the thing is that it's keeping reproducing this mind, other things that cling me to the world. Those kleshas, um, tanha and upatan and those things. But the problem for, of me is that those Kleshas are so strong. The satisfaction, the, the satisfaction in the beauty that I see, in the good music that I like, in the taste of food that I love, in the, in the feeling inside, in the touch that is satisfying. How to let go of those kleshas? <laughs> those are so strong. And I realized that those are the things that keep this mind reproducing and reproducing mm -hmm. and be not at its natural form, mm -hmm. be at the, the contaminated form of the mind. Mm -hmm. How can I make it more purified? Thank you. Well, my, my first thought is to say, welcome to the club. <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, that's, that's why the Buddha taught. Yeah. Uh, also, it's, it's important to consider after the Buddha's enlightenment, his first thought was, there's no point trying to explain this. You know, the, the beings of the world are so entrenched, so deeply attached to becoming, to bhava-tanha. So the, the world is addicted, it's, it, it relishes becoming, it relishes existence, it, it only knows uh, becoming. It only knows existence. Uh, and uh, if I try to explain the Dhamma that I understand, then this is just going to be wearisome and trouble, uh, troublesome for me. So his first inclination was like to not try and teach because like uh, he's the, the only, uh, in a world of addicts, he's the only one who's not hooked on the stuff. 
They'd say, oh, where do you start? <laughs> there wasn't seven billion people on the planet at his time, but uh, still, his first thought was, even after all of the countless lifetimes of preparation as a bodhisattva, as a bodhisattva then after his enlightenment, was like, there's no point trying to explain this. It's too difficult. Uh, the, the, the depth of attachment and addiction is so strong. But then he was persuaded by the Brahma Sahampati, who came along and said, please, for the benefit of those with a little bit of dust in their eyes, please teach what you understand. And the Buddha saw it's true. There's some beings with a lot of dust in their eyes and some with just a little. So in answer to your question, the uh, the one-word answer is practice. Yeah. Practice the Dhamma. Uh, make time for it. Uh, put your attention onto it. You know, the the good benefit that you've received from reading teachings, reflecting on teachings, from let let that be fully acknowledged. Like, okay, if I spent my time doing that, how did it feel? Yeah, good, good. And then when you go out with your friends and you go to this really great restaurant, oh, alright, Mark, aham, alright, Mark, oh, kinsawan, kinsawan. Okay. You feel like you're in heaven in the restaurant, and then afterwards, oh, what tong, what tong. Oh, I ate too much. Oh, I feel really stupid. It's only food. Oh, it's so expensive. And I said, okay, how does that feel? You know, I'm playing that up a little bit, but you get the point. Yeah? That, okay, that was delicious. Here's the result. Here's the hate. Here's the pong. Here's the, the cause. Here's the effect. Okay, now, rather than then dwell, attaching to self-hatred, oh, I'm so stupid, I can't, I shouldn't be so attached to food, I, you know, I'm a really bad person. That's just the prungdang, the kind of mind uh, complicating and elaborating. But just keep it very simple. Okay, having followed that, having absorbed into that delicious experience, how does it feel? What's the result? No commentary, just how does it feel? And when you look, and you go, meh. Okay, note that. It was delicious, but the, the result is meh. Or the other, which is, um, uh, it was uh, very wholesome, very, very uh, helpful. What's the result? I feel good. So just letting yourself be conscious of okay, what brings peace and happiness, what brings uh, disappointment and confusion. Okay, let that teach you. And again, as I was saying to our friend here in the in the white shirt, your friends, who do you spend time with? When the Buddha described uh, uh, the uh, the causes of avicca, avicca, ignorance, he doesn't talk about that very much, just a couple of different suttas. He speaks about that. But um, one particular teaching, he points out it's really... The, the company that you keep, the friends that you have. He said that if you, if you keep company with good people, with sapurisa, then that gives you occasion to listen to the Dhamma. If you listen to the good Dhamma, sadhamma savana, if you listen to the good Dhamma, then that gives rise to faith. When, when faith increases, then that gives rise to more, uh, <clears throat> more mindfulness uh, and clear comprehension. When there's more mindfulness and clear comprehension, there's more uh, wise reflection. When there is that mindfulness, wise reflection, then there, that gives rise to 
more restraint, indriya sangwan, indriya sangvara, which means you're less reactive. If you like something, you don't chase after it. If you dislike something, you don't uh, uh, attack it or hate it. You're you're more you're not um, obsessive or compulsive, but rather responsive. Kajaimai. So the uh, indriya sangvara means that you might have something that you like, you don't get drunk on it. There might be something you dislike, you don't have to hate it. You're, you're not reactive, you're responsive. So when the mind is more responsive, then it, is, uh, it reduces the amount of unwholesome thought, action and speech. It removes the fuel. Oh, doesn't takes away the fuel for unskillful action, thought and speech. When unskillful action, thought and speech are reduced, that takes away the fuel from the the uh, five hindrances, the <coughs> the nivarana. So sense, desire, ill will, restlessness, dullness and doubt. When the fuel for the five hindrances is removed, that removes the fuel from avijja. So avijja, ignorance, uh, is starved of its fuel. So it all begins with <coughs> the the friends that you have, and then he is another one of those causal chains. And he said, though if you spend time with unskillful people, with foolish people, you have less opportunities to listen to dhamma. Faith doesn't arise, doesn't give rise to wise reflection, doesn't give rise to to mindfulness and wisdom. Uh, you become more compulsive, more reactive. Uh, the uh, Unskillful thought, action, and speech are strengthened. The five hindrances are strengthened, and avijja, ignorance, is strengthened. So uh, it all the, begins. The root is with uh, the choices we make about who we spend our time with. So if you really want to to make things better <laughs> in your life, then look at the choices that you make when you print, when your friends say, "Oh, there's a new restaurant. Let's go see." Then take a moment. Okay, do I really want to go? What happened last time? <laughs> Think about it. So you're not trying to be uptight or, or lose all your friends, but just take a moment, okay, do I really want that? Uh, okay, it's exciting, it's interesting, it's really cute, really beautiful, really, in, really delicious, smells great. Do I, do I really need that? Is that useful? Let's take a moment and then say, okay, maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to say, you're stupid and foolish to just go to a, a new restaurant, just say, maybe next time, or let me think about it. Off you go. I'll call you if I want to come. And then you just give yourself a bit more space. And so uh, you are putting th- uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the conditions to, and uh, you're helping to create the, the causes and conditions for peacefulness to arise, helping to break the unskillful habits that we have. But also be reassured, you're not alone. I think it's the same reason everyone's here. <laughs> Almost identical, uh, I would say, for, for all of us. It's tough, it's hard work to do, but it's worth doing. You know, I'd say it's the only thing really worth doing. So you have good friends to, to support you if you look for them. So I think that's enough for this evening. <laughs>